Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. Callum is joining me today. He's the founder and CEO of Pollen, a hugely successful tech company in the experience space. He quit school at age 17 to start his first company, Let's Go Crazy, and raised half a million dollars when he was just 18 years old. 14 years later, that company is Pollen with over 300 employees today. I had the huge privilege to work with Cullum, being the first independent non-executive director he brought in. I'm hugely impressed by his visionary style and his incredible ability to stay calm in extremely stressful situations. In this episode, Callum will talk about finding the overlap between what you love and what you are great at, the role of the leader when it comes to resilience, and how to scale a complex organization that has done both M&A and is international. Callum, you're one of the most visionary leaders I've ever met, and you have incredibly high resilience. But before we talk about any of this, can you share where you grew up? Yeah, sure. So, um, and thank you, and thanks for having me on the show. Um, and yeah, I grew up in London, uh, Labrook Grove. How was growing up like? Yeah, it was cool. Um, school was an interesting experience for me. You know, I always say school is quite a cookie cutter approach. So if it works for you, it works. But for the people it doesn't work for, it really doesn't work. And, uh, and I, I, let's just say I didn't leave school loving learning, you know, whereas I love learning today. <laughs> so maybe didn't bring out my best self. So I, um, I went to like four or five different schools um, before leaving school at, seven, at 17. Wow. Okay. Fascinating. So I don't know if you know, but I failed 10th grade and I just didn't have any interest in school and I wanted to go outside, hang out, uh, you know, um, meet friends. So it was pretty, pretty bad for a long time until I figured out how fun learning is and growth mindset and so on. What didn't you like about school? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I, I think to your point that like, there's just so many different learning styles and School appeals to be with specific, you know, with a specific learning style, and you know, I think I learn, you know, I learn really well for experience, and I like things that are more interactive. Um, that was a major factor, I think, just in the real world. I found that I've learned in a way that suits me better. I, I also think the like, you know, the, the whole system of school, right, the traditional model that doesn't suit me very well. Like I'm not a massive fan of rules that I don't believe in. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that, that was probably a factor and like wearing the uniforms and all the rest. Like, you know, it was, it was sort of, it felt very industrial revolution esque kind of preparing me for the factories. And, and that, that wasn't, pla that wasn't pla where I was planning on going. Sure. And how were your parents? Like what did they, you know, teach you in terms of values growing up? What did you take away from them? Yeah. You know, um, I think, I think, you know, it's so funny as you get older, you really start to appreciate those things more. And when I look back and I think my parents always taught me to follow my heart, 
and were like unbelievably supportive of me sort of building my own path rather than rather than kind of following the the kind of more traditional obvious path that was in front of me so you know when I wanted to leave school when I wanted to set up my own business they were they were supportive and it was much more about what I love rather than you know what was going to make me the most money or or, or all the rest which was which was nice I, I also think for my parents like they always believe the most important thing you can give anyone is uh, is confidence um, and you know if you build people up and then it can come from within you know so I think that was uh, that was something they both worked very hard to do that's a very powerful point so what what did you do after leaving school uh, originally while I was at school I set up a business uh, selling tickets to, to over 18s nightclubs as uh, so, you know just normal nightclub events uh, but all of the clientele including me were, were under 18 <laughs> and I think I'd, I'd got bored of uh, sneaking kids in the fire exits and uh, giving out fake IDs. Um, and I think I had this realization, which was that, you know, although they all wanted to be inside, none of them were actually buying alcohol at the bar. It was too expensive. They were all drinking before <laughs> they came or, or coming for the music and the atmosphere. So familiar, I think yeah. that's when we saw this opportunity to basically create that same like rave experience, but for 16 year olds. And there's a business called Let's Go Crazy. And so we, we did one night, it went really, really well. And off the back of that, I left school straight away to, to focus on that. Wow. And did you set it up by yourself? Yeah, uh, originally. And then my, 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 my younger brother soon followed suit and, um, Liam, and joined yeah. me on the journey. But he's, he's a few years younger than me and, and left a little before me. So yeah, so he joined in straight after that. Wow. Okay. And so how did the business work out? Yeah, I know. Look, Let's Go Crazy was an exciting, um, you know, it was an exciting journey. It was a great way to cut your teeth in, um, in business. Um, but, you know, ultimately, like the events business that we were building, I think, I think we, we realized along the way that, um, so, so I, mean, I guess to take a step back, it was mass market dance events for 16 to 18 year olds. So like big lineups, um, going till six in the morning. We were very popular with, uh, with, with the parents. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we built these huge networks of kids um, who sold tickets to their friends. But um, so we we didn't use any traditional marketing channels to to promote the events, and it was all reward driven. So you know it was like if you bring eight of your friends, you get to go free. If you bring sixteen, you get to go backstage. That kind of thing. So it was definitely like a cultural phenomenon for a little while in the in in the UK. Like if you were of the right age when we were around, you you probably would have gone to one of these events or definitely knew people who did. But, but I think we, we kind of had a realization that the way in which we were selling the tickets using this word of mouth model was more interesting than the events themselves, you know, much more scalable. And so it kind of led us on to the next thing. So we didn't sell the business or anything. We just, uh, yeah, we just moved into what we do today. And what did you learn about business and yourself back then? You know, like market judgment, right, is what you build over years and years and years, and it really compounds. Um, but I've, I've never believed there's like one silver bullet or lot, like that many standout moments. I think it's, you know, hundreds of micro learnings and micro failures, right, which, um, which, mm. which make you who you are. In, in the early days, like I gave you the short story, we were also, we also launched this product called One Piece. They're like fashionably pleasing boiler suits. <laughs> They came from Scandinavia. <laughs> We sold 50,000 of them using the same word of mouth model wow. and then millions using a more blended marketing mix. But we were doing other things as well. And I think one of the things I learned was focus. You know, I used to be operationally involved in multiple things and I quickly realized you're much better, better off doubling down on one thing. So that was probably a standout moment. The, the other was um, we definitely had a few cash crunches in the, uh, in the early days, which, um, which you learn a lot from as well. 
for sure. And at what point did you feel like, wow, this has legs? Like, I'm so glad I left school. You know, this might scale and succeed. I think it's in some ways, I think it probably is easier taking those kind of steps when you're young, you know, because you don't have the same responsibility and maybe, um, maybe, maybe an even higher appetite for risk. So I don't think I ever looked back. And I think at that stage, it never felt like, you know, I didn't feel like if Let's Go Crazy hadn't worked, I would have gone back to school or, or anything. I felt like I would have moved on to the next thing. But, you know, I think you have this kind of weird, weird sense that you'll work, you know, it, it will work itself out, I suppose. And so, yeah, I, I think I was very bought into the idea of fo follow your heart and the rest will come. And can you tell us what Pollen is today and kind of talk about the evolution from Let's Go Crazy to Pollen over, you know, what, like 10 plus years, I guess? Yeah, yeah, totally. So in terms of what Pollen is today, so we're building a marketplace that has all the best experiences in one place, um, very much mainly focused on 18 to 30 year olds at the moment. And so, you know, whether you want to go, tra you know, on a travel destination, you want to go to a sport event, um, a festival, um, you can find all of those experiences on our platform. We think the future of uh, the experience space is about owning the content, but, but also owning like customer centric discovery. So like the way you distribute that content. Um, and so that's now what we're really, really interested in. So although we sell lots of third party experiences, um, a lot of our business now is selling our own experiences that we've developed in house, although mm. we use other people to, to execute those experiences. And then, yeah, and then in general, we're, we're not just thinking, let's have every festival in the world or let's have every nightclub in the world on the platform. We think about the audiences that we have and think, okay, based on this persona, what are the types of experiences that will appeal to them? And, and we build the content around the audience, you know, rather than the other way around. Uh, so that's Pollen today. Um, yeah, in terms of the evolution, I mean, we, we, we basically went from uh, selling other people's festival tickets um, and products for, with physical vouchers and cash to a SaaS product that, that allowed us to do that um, in, a, in a more scalable way. And then when we got enough scale, we, we flipped to the marketplace. But at this point, this was mainly in music. We then expanded into travel and restaurants and sport. Um, and then, yeah, then made that jump to creating our own content as well as, um, as, well as just selling other people's. And, and yeah, when I, when I say the content, I mean the, the experiences themselves. And so over time, you had to like build entirely new capabilities, you know, you had to figure out how to create the content. How did you go about building an organization that doesn't just depend on Liam and you, but actually, you know, got professionalized massively? I think you've got what, like 300 ish people today. Um, so talk me about like the journeys in terms of, you know, people and professionalization. There are like two things that really stand out in terms of how to do that, um, at least from at least from from our perspective. So, I, I, some people always say like in, I like to simplify it, right? Like the role of an entrepreneur is to have a strong point of view on the world and convince everybody else you're right. Um, but if you, yeah, if, that's a good summary. But if you do, <laughs> yeah, but if you take that view, um, for, for us, I think what really allowed us to step change our growth was bringing in amazing people around us. And I think you know over the years we've got better and better at hiring and attracting great people. Um, and, and then also setting those people up for success within the organization. So, um, but, you know, that, that was definitely one. I, I think the other area, which I know is something you, you think about the whole time and have talked about the whole time, but sort of institutionalizing knowledge. And, you know, de definitely what we're finding is the big difference from going from like zero to 100 million in sales than 100 to a billion dollars in sales is 
the need to build like everything needs to be a repeatable machine you know it needs to be an engine so that there's got to be a playbook that's constantly being iterated and improved that you know other people can pick up and learn and and all the rest so you've got to make the investments and capturing those learnings and and in some ways right those data points those facts that you prove that that becomes that's a huge part of your value proposition and your differentiation you know it's your business ip and and then training people to use that information in the right way not just to follow that information but to continue to build on it and and help it evolve yeah i think the amazing insight you're just you know pointing out is that what kind of makes you successful in the early days ie you know, chief energy officer, chief firefighting officer, like you literally galvanizing your mates to, to turn this into a business. It's not what makes you a success as a scale-up. All of a sudden, it's about process, you know, institutionalizing knowledge, hiring amazing talent, building a culture, codifying values, and so on. So there's this huge inflection point, and I'm really fascinated because you've clearly seen both. So you have an, an incredible um, vantage point. So talk me through about some of the the early kind of failures to professionalize, you know, maybe some of the, the hiring that's gone wrong or kind of the culture being misunderstood or, you know, it must have been really difficult to make that jump. You know, I, I think it is a constant evolution and you've, you've obviously got to be willing to be, you know, you've got to be someone that's willing to be adaptable and, you know, look, you know, read the market and the situation and, and your the needs of the company and, and, and be able to grow with it. You know, I, I think in general, Um, the best leaders are the fastest learners. And so it's like how you can continue to get feedback, right, from all around the organization, from all around you for as many different means as possible. I think that's been that's been critical to me. Like I've I've always felt like if I'm going to grow with a company, there's going to be parts of the journey that I haven't seen before. And so, you know, that's a combination of, yeah, bring in people who have and learn from them but also just take tons and tons of feedback so you can keep growing. So I think that that's always been the approach that I've taken. I think when you started, you were 17. Now you're, I think, turning 31. So an incredible kind of journey. Talk me through kind of some of the early days when you were in your early 20s and you started to hire quite senior people. This must have gone wrong a couple of times in the early days. Um, you fail every day, right? And so you, you kind of want to create an environment where you're getting feedback as quickly as possible when things are going wrong. And and also not just for you, but you want to create a culture that that celebrates failure and allows the company to fail, everyone in the company to fail, for for us as leaders to fail. And then to to take the you know to create the space to learn from that and and retro on it, which has always been a big part of our culture. So yeah, I mean, I've made tons of hiring mistakes. Like I remember in the early days when we first started getting into scale, uh, um, I think people might have described our business as like a revolving door because <laughs> we sort of bring people in and then a week later be like, oh, <laughs> we're not sure that's a good fit for, for either side. And then, you know, and then move on and go again. So I think we quickly worked out that, um, that hiring needed to be given a huge amount of attention, right? And like, ultimately, there's nothing more important you can do than bring the right people in up front. So, so yeah, I, I spent quite a long time trying to, to learn to get better at hiring. I got very inspired by this book called Hiring With Your Head by Lou Adler. You know, it, it's probably a, a lot to go into. It's definitely worth a read. But the headlines are it's more of like an evidence-based form of hiring. So a lot of the mistakes we made were like somebody was super smart, but not necessarily applicable for the role. You know, that they hadn't worked in a similar environment or, you know, a similar life stage to the company or, or they'd worked on very different types of tech or, or whatever it was. So we take a lot of time to really define the scope of a role. 
And then to put people through an interview process, which is very much looking for how much of the experience they've had in the past is transferable or replicable for the role that we need them to do. And I think that journey was a really amazing journey for the company to go on and, and something we're definitely institutionalizing and, and I think has made the quality of hiring that we're, we're doing far better than it, than it ever was. I think in terms of areas, other areas of mistake that stand out, I mean, yeah, as I say, like there were definitely issues in the early days with cash. You know, like, uh, you know, not, you know, we, we have a complex business with lots of working capital dynamics and all the rest. And, um, you know, def- definitely had some near misses. Uh, so learning to make the right investments there, like, you know, I think we've really elevated, which is also thanks to you, Timo, and your help, but really elevating uh, risk within the organization um, as something that we're, that we, we, we take a lot more seriously, you know, with risk codes and, and we have like weekly stand-ups on risk. And, and also just like really thinking about working capital, inventory management and all the rest that goes with it. So there just has to be a lot more rigor to, to all of that stuff. Yeah, it's ama- amazing how you professionalized the business in the last couple of years um, since I had the pleasure of kind of getting to know you a bit better. It's super, super impressive, I think. And just talk talk about culture a bit more. You have a really clear articulation of your culture today. So, you know, what does the culture stand for today and how did you end up there? So I've, I've always believed that the, the best people love what they do, you know, or at least want to go on a journey to discover what it is that they love. So, so that was the thing that really inspired the culture for me. You know, if I think about inspirations for that, you know, de- definitely the fact that school didn't work out for me gave me a real interest in like the, the recognizing that learning is different and like, how do you create an environment where everybody can discover what they love, can, you know, can be passionate, can have drive. I, I was also like a bit of a pro gamer at the same time as being at school. And, you know, Amazing. I just, I guess I remember thinking, you know, fuck, like I can spend 15 hours a day gaming and no, no one's got to pay me to do that. But, um, <laughs> but, I, but I definitely don't enjoy <laughs> going to school. So um, I think that was one of the early inspirations for our culture. I, I think then, as as we got into it more, I think I think also like you know the minute I set up my own company, I was running it. I, I went from being like the least motivated person I know to the most motivated person I know. So thinking about what you know what led to that and what was different in the role I was doing and how I could create an environment that allowed people to feel feel that as well. So I think that that was some of the early the early thinking. Um, I got very inspired by this book called Drive by Daniel Pink, where he talks a lot about mm-hmm. the drivers of intrinsic motivation, flow, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, what, what we ended up with was we wanted to create an environment which, uh, which helps people discover what they really love and then allows them to thrive. And we have a few different pillars to that. So freedom and ownership being one, mastery being another, and community being the third. So in terms of freedom and ownership, we don't have hours... Um, uh, meetings are, you know, you attend the meetings that you think are useful to you or, or useful to somebody else. You take as much holiday as you need. E- everything's about you can work from anywhere you want in the world. Like everything's about KPIs. Um, so it's all it's basically whatever enables you and your team to deliver the best results, and everything else is up to you. Um, so that that's been a huge part of our culture. One of the changes we actually made over time is originally it was work in the way that enables you to deliver the best results, but we changed it to you and your team as we got to a bit more scale. Um, j- just basically realizing that so you know 
you, you can democratize responsibilities to teams about the way they work, but obviously there's so much collaboration required in, in the kind of companies that we're, that, that we're building, you're building, that um, you, know, you can't have somebody deciding that they're going to work from 10 p.m. till 6 in the morning because it's the way they like to work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've, they've got to obviously take their teammates into account. Um, so the second is mastery. Like I, I'm, I'm basically a big believer in, you know, like playing a role of a company. Like we say, we want people to leave 10 times better than they joined. Um, and, and for us, we think that's all about helping them discover the overlap between what they love and what they're great at. And then going on a journey to, to master that thing. So we invest very heavily in coaching, like, um, you know, self-awareness. A lot of it's also just about creating the space to have those kind of conversations like, you know, managers and their teams talking about what gives you energy, what takes it away, you know, where, where are you at your happiness? Like what makes you uncomfortable? Like just means that people are, you know, they constantly have this on their mind. So yeah, so that's, uh, that's key. Like we've, we've got a coaching department, which is pretty unusual for a, for a company of our scale. And then in terms of uh, community, you know, I, th- I think like our whole history was in rave, you know, it was definitely something that was a bit of an inspiration for me in the early days, or at least something that um, was a big part of my life. And, you know, rave was all about like, it doesn't matter, like, you know, how you dress, there's no judgments, you know, where you're from. It's about, you know, it's about being your authentic self and like being the best version of yourself and being true to yourself and that kind of thing. And I mean, that was definitely something which was important to me when I was younger. And so, you know, of course, we're in the experience space. So, we've always invested in this idea of bringing people together and creating a community where everyone feels like they belong. And, and so that, that was uh, both, both from the perspective of just feeling part of a community and like enjoying working with your peers and all the rest, but also being able to bring your authentic self to work and like, and not having to hide parts of who you are. Super powerful. And I mean, as you know, I became a qualified coach last year. So I love the coaching angle you have and you know how you bring it alive in your culture. That's that's absolutely um, awesome and so powerful. One of the things I find most amazing about you is how calm you are in really, really painful, stressful situations. So talk to me about building resilience over time and how to stay calm you know, when you run out of cash, when you have to lean into really, really difficult people uh, decisions, um, when the stakes are incredibly high. In terms of things that I've really learned and care about, like, I think it, you know, it's so important, like as a leader, how you show up. And like, you know, when you go into a room, like, you know, the impact you're going to have just based on your body language and the way you're behaving on the people around you and how they feel. And also you've got to be able to absorb a lot of the stress that they feel, you know, rather than the other way around. Um, huge responsibility totally agree casting the leadership shadow and yeah it's a fantastic point exactly and so i guess that that was something like i definitely care a huge amount about and, and think about um the the other side of it is uh in general i suppose like how you manage stress and also like one of the th- i don't know one of the things that really helped me again from a development perspective was um am i living in the future past or the present and um i definitely made a huge gone on a big journey to try and live in the present as much as possible and not live in the past or the future which again i've found has been great from that perspective i i also think it comes back to some of the other things we were talking about though about like what motivates you why you do what you do you know i i definitely would go back to even the story i told you about my parents right like you, if you can be given confidence and believe in yourself, you know, you can get up, <laughs> you can keep getting up and falling down and getting up again. <laughs> I think it's the most important thing you can give anyone is, is that feeling. And, uh, you know, I remember reading that story that the founder of KFC visited a thousand, over a thousand uh, 
chicken shops before he found somebody that would, uh, that would fund his business, <laughs> which then became KFC. I think he was north at 50 at the point that he went on that journey. So, he was, yeah, it's a fantastic story. Yeah, it, it, it is. But also, right, like if, if you're motivated by the journey, not the end result, um, you mm-hmm. know, it becomes much more about like, what have I learned? Like, you know, the race is long. Like, are you enjoying the moment? You know, rather than like, am I winning? Am I going to make a billion dollars? Which I think can create a lot more stress in those kind of environments, you know? So, you know, I, like, I, I, I think you can get energy from a crisis or from a difficult situation because there are complex problems to solve. Um, you know, you can have a real impact. I, I guess it just depends on, on your mindset, right? Yeah, it's a fantastic point. And I keep on telling people, you know, it's it's about creating moments of appreciation over expectation, because, you know, in any business that's scaling super fast, you got to make everything better all the time, and it's painful. So how, you know, practically, how do you live more in the presence and, and don't focus too much on mistakes in the past or the future? What like mechanisms do you have? Well, I actually, um, genuinely, I, I've, I really invested in things like CBT, EDRM, uh, cognitive hypnosis, wow. those kind of things, um, which I found to be really, really powerful. So, so a lot of it was that. And then it just becomes practice, like becoming aware when you're not present, you know, when you're looking at your phone at the table, when you're not looking at someone while they're talking to you, while you're thinking about, you know, you, you sometimes feel like, uh, you know, when I was younger, I didn't live in the past much, but I lived a lot in the future. And I remember feeling like my face was just constantly pressed up against the glass, trying to get into the next room. Um, yeah. And I think that that change for me was pretty dramatic and, and like, yeah, definitely on my quality of life. And it just means that my, you know, my thoughts are less clouded and, and all the rest. And, you know, I think another thing, right, as a leader, you're const- there's, there's lots of tensions that you're having to manage, right, the whole time. And I think that tension of needing to make the hard decisions and also the impact that's going to have on other people. You know, I think I've learned to manage those kind of tensions better with, with time as well, which gives you clearer thought and means you have less stress. I, I also think, I don't know, like, you know, I'm sure, Timo, you've probably got your own. I think most people who run companies, they, they develop different mechanisms to like manage stress. I, don't, I think it's got to be tailored. What's right for one person isn't necessarily right for another, but I'm pretty obsessive about routine. Uh, extremely obsessive. So, like, I'm pretty radical in the way that I defer decisions and like make as few decisions as possible every day, and like having the right support structures around me and and all the rest, so that I can really focus on the things that matter. Because I start getting stressed if I've got decision fatigue or I'm working 16 hour days. So I'm you know I'm not able to bring my peak, you know be at peak performance and bring my best to a situation. What what I always find amazing is is if I do nothing, I end up having sixteen hours of back to back meetings, and I probably shouldn't be in any of them. So the key, as you said, is saying no, like really, really re- relentlessly focusing on impact, setting the agenda, driving the agenda, stepping out of decision making. Um, it's a really powerful point, and I mean, you've been on this journey for what like thirteen, fourteen years now, so. You know, have you ever experienced longer periods of lack of energy? How do you stay the chief energy officer over 14 years, pretty much? Like everybody processes stress and, and emotions differently. I sometimes find they hit me later, you know? So like, I think even taking the last year, right? Like I'm, I'm an experienced business, so COVID was definitely tough for a moment. Although although we've 
come out of it well the other side touch word i should, probably should say um but uh but, oh, you, you know. will you will you know the <laughs> primary the primary effect of covid is it's accelerating existing shifts so you're massively benefiting from it it just takes time and appreciation that this year was hugely painful but you've mastered it really well yeah i always say you know things like covid they're not changing human behavior but they're accelerating trends that were already coming yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah. So we had like a free month, you know, get, you know, get, get the board to support, um, in, injecting some capital in the business so that we can restructure it and get to the other side and a shift in strategy. And, you know, that, that took everything out of me for a few months. And I, I definitely, then the other side of it, once we'd closed the capital and all the rest, I definitely had an energy lull, you know, for like the months of July, August, I, you know, I still did the things that really mattered, but things that were P2s and it didn't get done in the same way. But I think that's okay. You know, I think sometimes can, people can beat themselves up about that kind of stuff too much. Like I think we're all human and I think it's important to take the time to process emotions and process how you're feeling and paying attention to your energy levels. Because again, like you're not going to be able to, to bring the best to the company or your team if you're, if you're not paying attention to those signals. And just changing the subject slightly, talk to me about kind of the confluence of, you know, brand, product, content and technology. How do you organize a large company, you know, to leverage technology to drive product and, and customer satisfaction? Some of it's about organize. I also think some of it's like we're very clear always that we always say like, you know, we're not an experiences business, we're a technology business. And I think that's that's always been important. So, you know, when we're thinking about onboarding programs and all the rest, we, we make a big effort to engage everybody in the product and in technology and in product thinking and, and all the rest. And that's something we're investing more and more in um, because we see it paying real dividend. You know, but, but, but I think also so much of this, right, is like how you communicate to different parts of the business and, and work with them to help them think about how technology can pay, like play a really, really critical role to what they're doing. And, and, you know, we, we've definitely found that despite the fact that we've got teams that haven't had a lot of exposure to technology in the past because the experience industry, you know, ha hasn't seen some of this stuff before, um, you know, they're so excited about what automation and technology can bring to the table. And I, I think so much of it's about explaining the why, you know, like, look what it can do for customer experience, for MPS, for, you know, for sales. And I think that that kind of stuff can get people really excited, you know, rather than just what we're building. How do you inject technology into all teams? Yeah, so I, I'm a very big believer in, in micro teams and squads and all the rest. So, you know, we have our like core product teams and we, we are now structuring them around the kind of funnel. So you've got, you know, your activation team, you've got your uh, checkout team and so on. We also set up loads of cross-functional teams, whether that's a growth team or a team that's focused on the destination app or, or whatever it is where we're bringing in, it's not just product and tech design, you know, we're bringing in sales, we're bringing in marketing and they're sitting in those squads and really engaging in them. And we're finding that really powerful. And what about like fundraising? You know, when, when did you raise the first funds or the, the first external capital? How old were you and you know, how did it feel? I raised half a million quid when I was, um, I think when I was 18, um, was was the first time that's amazing <laughs> thank you some people from the media industry who were excited about tech and, and wanted to go on the ride and no like it was it was a nice feeling I, I've got to be honest I'm I'm always um I did particularly when I was younger but even today like I I probably could uh, you know probably could spend more time celebrating successes um 
Uh, like I think same, always yeah. on to the next thing. So um, although although it was exciting, I was more excited about what we could do with the money. And then I guess over time, you know, you got diluted down, you professionalized the board. Talk me through kind of the evolution of the shareholder base. Today you have, you know, one of the, the most blue chip um, VC funds invested. How do you feel about managing VC funds and kind of the obligation and responsibility towards them? You know, has it changed your perspective on how to run the business? How do you feel about it? You know, d different people optimize for different things. For me, I always optimized for the people around the table. Um, you know, like I'd rather take a little bit more dilution or have a little bit less capital, um, although capital would be the second most important thing to me, to, to have the right partners, you know, people that are aligned with you philosophically or aligned with the vision, you know, have got influence within their fund, um, you know, can be real strategic partners. They've seen the movie before or seeing lots of different business models at different stages. Um, so that, that was always important to me. You know, I think it's good to have a board that can hold you to account and can challenge you to, to make sure you're running the company well. And, 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 you know, and, you know, I think that that's, that's good for the, for building long-term value. You know, I, I think at different stages, like different people make sense to have around the table and, um, Uh, and, you know, so I don't, I don't think, you know, I think boards can really evolve over time. Like someone who's right at your A round isn't necessarily right at your C round, you know, because you're, you want to have people around the table that can add as much value as possible for the, for the life stage and situation and context that you're in. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, companies evolve incredibly fast and somebody who's focused on seed stage is no longer kind of the expert when it comes to scaling up and scaling cultures and hiring hundreds of people. So it's a really powerful point. I don't see a lot of boards lean into. Um, so boards definitely have to evolve. You know, can you share one or two ideas on how to get value from, from your board? That initially, when you're thinking about VCs and the people, you know, the investors sitting at your table, a lot of it's going to be about the next raise. And, you know, they have a, they obviously have a lot of, you know, a, a deep understanding of, what investors want to see at the next stage and can make intros to the right partners and the right funds. And when you start fundraising can be real advocates for the business. Uh, I, I also think key introductions. I've definitely found though you need to get quite specific, you know, and um, if it's like, I really want to meet this specific person or these 10 specific people and, um, or, or, you know, people in this area, like definitely that's been an area that my board's added uh, tons of value. And then I also think for, for us, bringing on NEDs was really valuable. I think having a mix of NEDs um, with operational experience and, and VC investors is, is great. Um, bring, bring different perspectives. Um, how, how do you improve reporting or getting deep into your business and, uh, if, they're, if they're operators and helping you think about talent and hiring and your senior management team and, 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 and all the rest. So that, that was definitely helpful. Callum, you've raised so much capital over time. What have you learned? The, the first is like when you're fundraising, like I think you need to see yourselves kind of like a sportsman or an, or an actor or whatever, you know, like it's all about peak performance. And, you know, you're, you, you're on stage all the time. You've got to be able to be at your best. And um, like, I think like thinking about sleeping, eating, um, like how you're practicing, um, like, you know, how you're working around it is, um, is really important. You know, like if someone's going on, uh, you know, going on in a competition as like a tennis star, you know, if they said they got nine hours sleep, ate a proper meal, had a massage in the morning, no one would laugh at them. But I think sometimes in business, we're expected to like, 
you know, be able to like solve problems that have never been solved before and, and give our best presentations on like two hours sleep. So um, I'm a big believer in, in that. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing, people get really obsessed with dilution and the fund brand name and that kind of thing. In my experience, the most important thing is the partner. You know, you're going to be sitting next to that person for years, you know, for years to come. And you've both got to think about how aligned you are and how much value they bring to the business, but also the amount of currency that they have within the the firm. Because, you know, you don't just want them to invest in this first round, but you want them to be able to follow on with more capital in the future. So their ability to, you know, get their IC on board and get them to support the business for the long term, I think is really, really important. For us, our business was quite binary, um, probably because we were doing something which the, the VCs and the investors, they maybe had less empathy for. You know, it was, a new, it was a new concept and not something that they would use. It definitely meant that, you know, as the, as, the, as the funding rounds went on, we'd always find a partner that was super, super excited about the business. But then when we'd go to IC, you know, those environments are pretty political. They're kind of strange, a bit awkward. There's like 30 people in a room. They only get time to ask one question. You've got like 30 minutes. Um, it can be difficult to get everybody on board. You know, you can get the whole way there and then, and then not get the term sheet off the back of the IC because the partner that loved what you're doing couldn't garner enough support. So I think one thing that I've found really, really useful is insisting ahead of ICs that I meet other partners um, that, that are influential in the room. And you kind of need to lobby the IC in a way uh, before the IC happens. So all of the key decision makers have already, already want to invest. And you almost want to work that out before the IC. So the IC is kind of like a tick box. Over the last four years, we've raised 150 million pounds. And uh, all of the lessons you just mentioned, I wish I had known before. They're very powerful points. You have done M&A relatively early on. Like, talk me through, you know, what you learned about M&A and the, the challenge of integrating cultures. You know, in, in general, we were really happy with the M&A we did. We did think that the culture that we have helped because it's quite, you know, it's an entrepreneurial culture. So I think it was easier for entrepreneurs to, to fit in. Um, it's also very like human, you know, human culture. I think if you work in early stage companies, That, that's a feeling that you really like and you can sometimes feel gets lost. And so I think that really helped. You know, people felt like they were joining a business that, that was an environment that wasn't that dissimilar to the one they were in already and, and sort of saw the pluses and, and that, that really helped with the people integration. We definitely spent a, a huge amount of time on, on integration, both from like an onboarding in terms of like culture, what the business does and all that kind of stuff, but also community building. You know, we ran tons of experiences, invited everyone along, you know, tried, tried to create that feeling of one team as quickly as possible. You know, no one was on the outside, um, that feeling of psychological safety. So, so th I think those investments um, really, really paid off. In, in terms of like, you know, may, maybe biggest learning from doing the M&A is I think you've got to think about that not, not just, I, I think we, were, we really fought a lot up front about the, the deal itself and the initial integration But you have to see that more as like a two, three year integration rather than it's three months and then it's done. And I don't think we mapped out the following two years as well as we could, like how will those teams and the, and the founders of those companies grow in the organization? Where will they end up? Like, how does that align with what they want to do? You know, that, that, that kind of thing is an area that um, when we do, you know, when we do M&A again, we're, we're going to think a lot more about. I, I also think 
so so much of what I learned about M and A is it's all about aligning incentives between you and the entrepreneur, and so more how you can just simplify the structures of the deals so much, um, and really understanding deeply what it is they want and what they care about and who they are, so that you can get a structure that's that's going to work. So, I mean, the M&A has driven some complexity, but you're also operating in the US um, and the UK. So talk me through how it feels um, to run a business in two big markets. Um, I guess you're traveling quite a lot and in normal circumstances, I should say. Just to your last point, I think the biggest thing about M&A is I think if you're an early stage company, it needs to be strategic. You know, don't buy revenue. It's got to be something that's going to be step shaped for what you're doing. And be a real lever for growth because it is a big investment and, and really, really get to know the people you're getting into bed with and therefore like structure the deal appropriately around that. Um, I, I think those were the, the things that really paid off for us, like understanding what the strategic value really was and where the assets were and, and understanding who the people were and, and, you know, how we could get the best out of them. You know, we are a complex business. And um, like I, I always say in some ways, like it's, it's going to be great in the midterm because it, it will be one of the things that makes us really defensible, I think. But yeah, you know, we do own a lot of the value chain and, and, and all the rest. And yeah, we're operating in multiple markets. I think, again, like hiring great people is critical if you're doing that. Like you've got to have people with deep expertise in, in different areas, but also people that can really lead when you're not in a country or you know you're not in you know you're not you're not in an office or even on a time zone so that was pretty important just zooming out of the detail what are you most proud of so far and there's so many things i really really think you've built an amazing business and you know there's no reason why it won't be a billion plus kind of unicorn uh, in the very near future um you've got an incredible foundation but what are you most proud of personally so, I, you know, I think I always said I, I never wanted to build a big company. I wanted to build a great company. Um, and for me, that was really adding value to your stakeholders. You know, um, it's your it's your customers, it's your employees. So I'm really proud of the culture that we've built. Um, and I'm really proud of the value that we bring to customers, like even more today. Like, you know, I think we're creating experience content. It's a whole new category of content. It's, you know, it's it's never existed. And 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 really on trend and something our audience really, really want. So pro probably those are the things I'm, I'm most proud of. And if you fast forward, you know, age 60, like how will life look like for you? And looking back again, like what are you most proud of? <laughs> the, the, yeah, the big question. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so, you know, um, yeah, I, I guess I, I can look at this through a few different lenses. I, I think, you know, you can go on this kind of journey, right, to try and work out. It's like a real journey of self-awareness to try and understand what your purpose is, you know. Um, and I think for me, it's I definitely want to live a big life. If I'm really into things like self-actualization and, yeah, how, how you can grow to the biggest extent, you know, how you, how you can do and see as much as possible and all the rest. So I think that, that's a really, really big driver for me. But, yeah, I definitely was always interested in building a business empire, I suppose. Uh, and then I and then I think I am more interested in you know how how I can give back to the world after that and like social enterprise and and all the rest is probably where I'd want to go next um, if I'm fortunate enough to be in that position. 
Churchill had an advisor and his advisor was saying, your problem is Churchill, you're trying to do too many things. You know, in your mission statement, you can only, can only be one sentence and you can only have an and. You know, Abraham Lincoln, it was end the depression and free the slaves. <laughs> what, what, what's going to be yours? And uh, so that's something I always think about. You know, I think you've, I think you've got to have a lot of focus if you, want to have, um, if you want to have an impact. You know, you're a humble guy, but if you had to kind of point out what made you successful, you talked about confidence from your parents. Why do you think you keep on succeeding at this scale? I, I do really believe in following what you love and following your heart. There's an expression which I don't think is quite true, but I still like the, uh, the sentiment behind it, which is um, um, you have the big gift and the small gift. The small gift being a natural talent and the big gift being loving what you do. And eventually people with the big gift get mistaken for people with the small gift. So, <laughs> That's awesome, yeah. So I do believe if you find that thing that you're obsessed with and you, you know, you, you know I, I love that, that there's that um, famous quote, I've forgotten the name of the poet, but um, she says, I don't distinguish between work and play. Um, so I definitely think part of it's that, right? Like if you, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have watched the Queen's Gambit recently, right? And her obsession with chess. And I guess mm. like that, that, that thing, that obsession, I think, you know, that, that obviously helps. Like if you, if you really love what you do, you don't take shortcuts and, and, you know, it doesn't feel like work. So, so, you know, I think it's easy to give, to give far more than a hundred percent for a very long time. So I think that's part of it. I think the other thing is just being a sponge, like, That's the whole thing, you know, have a growth mindset, wanting self-awareness, like not having an ego, all this stuff. It just means that you can learn so quickly from the people around you and, and, the, and the world around you. So I think, you know, what I said earlier, like the, the best leaders are the fastest learners. I just think understanding how you learn best and what that environment is and just how to create as many situations as possible to learn quickly. And then, and then focus and prioritization. And, and I think, you know, everyone has their own style. Like I, as I say, for me, it was kind of real, like erratically deferring a lot of my life, but you, you need to find a way to, to really radically focus on the things that, that really, really matter and, and not get distracted by the oh so many distractions that only become greater as, um, as, as your business grows, I think. So yeah, th those are probably like three standout ones. Really great points. And I, I massively share your perspective, you know, what an amazing privilege it is to run Gusto or to run Pollen. It then becomes fun once you kind of acknowledge that and, you know, you really focus on the opportunity and you know how to manage yourself and your energy. So one of the things I love the most and I want to thank you for is how you talked about being self-aware, creating reflection practice deep thinking, you know, personal growth mindset. I think this stuff really sets you apart from 99.9% .9 of people I talk to. So really, really amazing to get that perspective. Um, look, thank you so much for taking the time, Callum. No probs at all. And, and thank you for having me.